Welcome to Gracious Words. Gracious Words is taken from the weekly women's Bible study taught by Cheryl Broderson at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. We behold your glory, God, in the face of Christ. It shows us who you are, revealing who you are. Closed doors in life can be awkward and difficult. We are often so preoccupied with the closed doors that we don't see the open doors around us. Today, we are going to study Luke 24 and see our resurrected Jesus and the wonderful and divine doors that only He can open. Here is part one of Cheryl's message titled, Opened. So glad that we're here together. You know, closed doors are really awkward and they're really difficult. I personally, I don't like closed doors, but I'll tell you somebody who hates closed doors more than I do, and that would be my dog Barnabas. I know you're thinking, Cheryl, not another Barnabas example, but when your kids grow up, move out of the house, and you get a dog, you're left with dog examples. And so Barnabas is my example of hating closed doors. Brian and I will often have to leave Barnabas at home when we come to church or uh, we're going out to dinner with friends, and we'll open the glass door and we'll ask Barnabas to go out. And he'll look at us like, I'm not falling for this one again. I remember the last time you opened the door, I walked out and Then you closed it and you locked it and I wasn't allowed back in. And he gets this really suspicious look on his face every time we open the door. Now, sometimes he'll even ring the bells because he wants to go out. But the minute that we open the door, he looks up at us and says, you know what, something's up here. And he goes over and he sits on his pillow. Not only that, when Brian and I have company over, sometimes we'll close the door of our room. Barnabas will come upstairs, bark at the closed door. We'll let him in our room. And if we close the door, he'll go back over to the door and he'll bark again because he wants out. You see, my dog just hates closed doors, but he's so much like us. We hate closed doors too. And we're not alone in that. The children of Israel, they hated closed doors. Think about Exodus chapter 14. The children of Israel are complaining. They've got the pie Hagamoth, they've got Mount Migdal on both sides. They've got the Red Sea in front of them. And they've got the Egyptian army bearing down on them. Everything looks like a closed door. And they're so angry with Moses. But then what does God do? He opens an unexpected door. He literally parts the Red Sea. He does the impossible and he brings them across on dry land. You see, again, our God opens doors. Um, There's a saying that, goes something like this. When God closes a door, he opens a window. Well, I want to go further than that because when God closes a door, he's opened another door. Now, it's hard for us because all of us have had to deal with a closed door of a relationship or a closed door of a friendship. Maybe that friend has died. Maybe that friend has moved away. Maybe that friend doesn't like you anymore. And your first 
reaction when you get news is to want to call them and to talk it over. And then you're like, they're not there. I have that a lot with my dad. Something my kids or my grandkids will do, and I want to call my dad immediately and tell him, is this amazing? But I'll remember, it's a closed door. It's just a closed door. And those closed doors are so hard for us. There's the closed door of a job. You might not have even liked that job, but when that door closes, it's hard. A door of a location that we lived in, or maybe you would like to vacation, that's no longer available. The door of an activity that perhaps you can no longer do because of health, or a closed door to a food that you used to eat when you were a kid and never gain weight. Now you just look at it and you gain weight and it's a closed door or a closed door of opportunity. You know, you were hoping that this thing would come through and suddenly the door shuts. But we spend far too much time pining at the closed doors in our lives, sitting outside the door and like Barnabas just barking and crying and begging and not enough time looking for the open doors that God has given us to enter, to walk through, and to enjoy what's inside. Our preoccupation is so often at the closed door, rather than looking and enjoying the open doors, we lament the closing, we sit at its space, and we often cry, Lord, why did you allow it? Again, going back to the children of Israel, think about it. They kept complaining to Moses, about not being able to go back to Egypt. And because of their complaining and constant desire for the closed door of Egypt, that generation never entered into the open door of the promised land that God wanted to take them to. The resurrected Jesus proclaimed to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3, 7-8, A. These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no man can shut it. The doors Jesus has opened to us are far more wonderful, glorious, divine than the doors that he has shut. Things that were formerly shut to us have now been divinely opened by Jesus' accomplishment on the cross and victory over death. In 1986, my Aunt Isi spoke at Vista, our church in Vista. It was a women's gathering. And she chose as her text Luke chapter 24. She was 83 years old at the time. And she called it the chapter of the opens. And as best as I remember, I want to plagiarize that study and present it to you today. In Luke chapter 24, we have seven opens. We have an open tomb. We have open eyes. We have open hearts, open scriptures, open understanding, open promises, and open heaven, all because Jesus has risen from the dead. We have three different groups of people. We have women at the tomb. Two disciples on the road to Emmaus and the disciples gathered in the upper room. We have four different locations. We have the tomb, the Emmaus road, the upper room, and the hill near Bethany. Beginning in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12, we have a group of women who are coming early to the tomb of Jesus. The last time they saw Jesus, his lifeless body was being wrapped by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and being placed into Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. 
We're told that Joseph and Nicodemus had come with 75 pounds of spices to embalm the body of Jesus. And the women stood afar off just watching this. They were unprepared for the burial of Jesus. Now, the next three days, the women were unable to do anything. There was the Sabbath. There was then this, the high Sabbath or the normal Sabbath, Saturday, and they couldn't get to the body of Jesus. But after that, then they gathered the spices. They were ready to come and anoint the body of Jesus. I think this is typical women looking on going, they're only using 75 pounds of spices. We could do so much better. And women, of course, they wanted to add their spices, their tender touch to Jesus. And they came early in the morning, we're told, in Mark chapter 16, verse 5, that their preoccupation was the large stone that barred the entrance to the tomb. They weren't concerned about the seal of Caesar across the stone tomb. They weren't concerned about the guards that were there to keep anyone from taking the body of Jesus. No, their greatest concern was the fact that this huge stone, which was too heavy for them to roll away, was keeping them from the body of Jesus. However, when they arrived at the tomb, they found that the tomb was open and the stone had been rolled away. The women entered into the tomb area expecting to find the body of Jesus. And they were perplexed, dismayed, confused when they didn't see Jesus' lifeless body inside the tomb. Instead, they were met by two men in shining garments. And the men were so glorious in appearance that the women were afraid and they bowed their faces to the earth. These divine messengers then questioned the women, why do you seek the living among the dead? In other words, they said, women, you are looking for Jesus in the wrong place. He's not in a dead, lifeless tomb. He's alive and he's among the living. Then they announced, he is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. The women expected a closed tomb. They were going to exert their strength to open it. What they found instead was an open tomb. Their expectations had been too low. They wanted to anoint a dead, lifeless Jesus. They had planned to mourn and cry over their loss, but instead they found an open tomb, exquisite glory, angelic beings, divine revelation. He is not here, but is risen. And the power of Jesus' fulfilled word. God opened the tomb. In Matthew 28, 2 through 4, we read, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The tomb was open not to let Jesus out, but to show that he was not in the tomb. It was not only that death could not hold Jesus, but rocks and stones and graves and walls and fortresses, nothing, nothing can hold Jesus back. 
The impediment to Jesus was not a Roman seal, not armed guards, not a huge, heavy, immovable stone, not a tomb. No, God dealt with that. The only impediment to Jesus is a closed heart. It's an unbelieving heart, a heart that won't believe. The women, seeing all this glory, ran to tell the disciples, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and they told the disciples what they had seen. And the disciples that listened to these women, because of the hardness of their heart, because of the closed condition of their heart, they relegated the women's testimony to hysteria of women. Now, doesn't that bother you just a little bit? I hate it when I'm passionate about something and a man will say, oh, yep, a woman. Oh, that makes me mad. Or they thought it was idle tales. In other words, like the hallucinations or the exaggerations of women. Peter and John, though, they felt something else because they went running to the tomb. And in John chapter 20, John records that Peter stepped inside the tomb while he waited outside. And Peter saw the linen cloths lying by themselves and the handkerchief that covered Jesus' face folded in a different place. And Peter was perplexed. But John records that when he saw, when he heard, he believed. Going on in this chapter, we find more openings. In verses 13 through 32, Cleopas and another disciple are walking on the road that leads from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's a seven-mile walk. And as they're walking this, they're dejected. They're talking together about their disappointment, their disillusionment, and their dead desires, what seemed like closed doors. But while they're walking, while they're sad, Jesus himself comes and he walks alongside of them. In fact, Luke tells us that he drew near to them while they walked. And he asked them about their conversation. Their eyes were restrained, so they could not recognize them. And Jesus asked, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Jesus is saying, what type of conversation is this? You see, how would you label this conversation? It's sad. It's dejected. It's disappointed. It's delusioned. They're trying to process. They're trying to talk over what their feelings identify, how they feel. It was a conversation of grief. It was a conversation about closed doors and of dashed hopes. Cleopas' anger even seems to boil over a little bit when he answers Jesus rather rudely saying, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? In other words, how is it that you didn't hear? Everybody in Jerusalem knows what was going on. It was the Passover time. It was the talk of Jerusalem. Jesus was publicly paraded through the streets of Jerusalem. He was publicly executed by Rome. And no one could stop it. Nobody the condemnation and crucifixion of Jesus was not secret. Most of Israel was present in Jerusalem at that time for Passover. Jesus was what had been talked about throughout 
the Passover week. Many there were giving testimony about his healing, about his word, about his touch, about his work in their life. Only a week earlier, he had been heralded by the crowds as the king, Hosanna, the son of David. Publicly, he had cleansed the temple and driven the money changers and the merchandisers out. And Cleopas is saying to Jesus, how can you not know what everyone else in Israel knows? But Jesus asked Cleopas about these things that had transpired in Jerusalem in order to draw Cleopas and the other disciple out, in order to open their hearts and to speak into their hearts. Often Jesus' way of dealing with our hearts is first for us to pour out our hearts, to empty our hearts before him. In Psalm chapter 62, we're told, pour out your heart before him. He is a refuge for us. The Lord wants us to entrust him with our disillusionment, with our hurts, with our pains, with our disappointments. You know, sometimes no one is safe with those things but Jesus. But oftentimes I find that we're trying to pray the sanctimonious spiritual prayers. We're trying to pray the prayers we think Jesus wants to hear instead of the honest prayers of our heart. Lord, I'm hurting. Lord, I don't understand. Lord, I'm disillusioned. Lord, why did you allow it? These are the honest prayers that Jesus can deal with. And Cleopas and the other disciple, perhaps if they had recognized Jesus, they would have prayed sanctimonious prayers or they wouldn't have been honest in their conversation. But because they, their eyes are restrained at this point, they're honest. And Cleopas answered with all his past hopes, the seeming closed doors of his life. He said, these are the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who we had hoped or we thought was a prophet, God's representative, the spokesperson of God's word, who is mighty indeed and power before God and all the people. Verse 19, he's saying Jesus was so authentic and Jesus did what no one else did in the sight of God and in the sight of man. He healed. He raised the dead. He calmed the storms. He fed the multitudes. He confounded the wise. He condemned the self-righteous and the religious hypocrites. He spoke the truth always, and he spoke it with authority and grace. He cleansed the temple. And he said the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned. The innocent Jesus tried and found worthy of death for no specific crime. It was so unjust. It was so wrong. But then it was done by the religious elite, those who were supposed to be upholding the spiritual life of Israel. They were the ones who were supposed to exemplify and lead the Jews in adherence to the scripture, obedience to the law, truth, and justice. But they had compromised and conspired with Rome to kill the just, the holy, the loving, the compassionate one. And then 
Cleopas says, we were hoping, past tense, that he would redeem Israel. Verse 21, Cleopas' hope was dashed. He was hoping that Jesus would bring salvation, that Israel would turn and accept Jesus as their king, and that then Jesus could usher peace into Israel. And then he said, and all of this transpired only three days ago. And certain women of our company astonished us when they returned from the tomb, claiming that the body was gone and they had had a vision of angels that proclaimed that Jesus was alive. Cleopas went on to say that certain of their company went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but did not find the body of Jesus. Jesus then rebukes the closeness of these men's heart. He rebukes their foolishness. He says, foolish to not believe the evidence, the empty tomb, the witness of these certain women of their company, women that they knew, that they had traveled with, that they knew the integrity, they knew their love for Jesus, they knew their faithfulness and service, they knew their truthfulness. And yet when it came to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, They were afraid to believe these women. Foolish to not believe the testimony of John and Peter, key disciples that had gone to the tomb and found it just as the women said. Then he says, slow of heart to believe. You see, their heart was so closed and it was so slow to open and actually believe all that the prophets wrote slow to put the scriptures together with the events that were transpiring, slow to remember the words of Jesus. Ought not the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? In other words, Jesus was saying it was fitting, it was right, ought not the Christ to have suffered. This was the plan of God throughout the ages. When Jesus had come to John the Baptist and asked John to baptize him, John the Baptist had first refused. And Jesus said, John, don't refuse for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus lived an absolutely righteous life. And this was part of his righteous activity. As we're told in Philippians chapter two, to obey God completely, even to the point of death, death on a cross. It was fitting. It was the right thing to have suffered the condemnation, the brutalizing, the barbarism and evil of men. Jesus took the worst that men could give in order to give men his best, his righteousness, his salvation, his promises, his glory, and enter into his glory. These things did not keep Christ from glory. They did not disqualify him from glory. In fact, they were the door to his glory. He entered into the door of glory by suffering. Jesus then expounded from Genesis right through Malachi all the things concerning himself. My dad used to say if ever there was a sermon he wanted to hear, it was this sermon. When Jesus starting in Genesis, probably 
with Genesis 3.15, which is called the Proto-Evangelium Scripture that first foreshadows the need of man for a Redeemer that will crush the head of Satan and in the process be bruised, a foreshadowing of the suffering of the Messiah and yet the victory of the Messiah. He no doubt talked about Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac, where God stopped Abraham from killing Isaac and provided a lamb. And Abraham named the place on Mount Moriah, Jehovah Jireh, or God will provide for in the Mount of the Lord, it shall be seen or provided. Perhaps he he talked about the testimony of Joseph, who was betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a pit, then sold to the Ishmaelites, went to Egypt, was betrayed by Potiphar's wife, thrown into prison. Three days after Jesus was buried, a group of women went to the tomb to anoint his body. Much to their surprise, they arrived and found an opened tomb. The tomb was opened not to let Jesus out, but to show that he was not there. Jesus rose from the dead like he said he would. He had defeated sin and death and no tomb could hold him. His opened tomb opened the door to eternal life for us. We hope you have been blessed by today's Bible study. For more information about the Gracious Words radio program and the teaching ministry of Cheryl Broderson, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. Coming up next time on the Gracious Words program, we'll look at an encounter between two dejected disciples and the risen Jesus as we continue our Jesus Magnified study in the Gospel of Luke with Cheryl Broderson. We do hope you make plans to join us. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.